What's South Africa's decarbonization plan? And what's Switzerland's decarbonization plan? Welcome to the Climate Recap from the Beckosphere Climate Corner, your go-to place for international and U.S.-based climate news. I'm Becky Hogue, a climate communicator. Let's jump right into today's news. While not much seems to be happening inside of COP27's event, the large UN climate conference taking place in Egypt right now, things are moving outside of it. Yeah, we'll talk more about what happened for week two of COP27 in the next video. But in this, we're going to talk about what is happening on the outside of COP27. And because it's been a while since I've done a regular recap, uh, a lot of these moves were made like right before COP27 started. But before we learn about more policy moves, we need to hear about some extreme weather events and studies. Starting with the former, the triple La Nina is continuing to flood Australia. Heavy rainfall fell in the continent's southeast at the beginning of this week, resulting in evacuations and flooding that cut off inland towns. Specifically, this event burst riverbanks and submerged roads and bridges in southwest New South Wales and northeast Victoria, which has already seen several flooding events this year. The triple La Nina is expected to continue until about March of next year. Similarly, a recent study showed a different part of Australia, namely Sydney, has seen rainfall events intensify by 40% over the last two decades. The researchers at the ARC Center of Excellence for Climate Extremes looked at data on rainbursts, which are extreme downpour events that occur for a period of about 10 minutes from 1997 to 2018. The researchers say the cause of this intensification is not totally clear, but climate change is definitely in the picture. The study's co-author said, quote, There's a lot of evidence that climate change could push the system in this direction, but this is maybe 10 times more than we would have expected just from climate change. The team ruled out climate systems like the El Nino Southern Oscillation and the Indian Ocean Dipole as possible causes. What do you think might be causing it? Do you think that climate change is making more of an impact than we think or that there's something else going on? Let me know in the comment section below. Last week, the UK experienced its warmest armistice day in history, according to the Met Office, with some places reaching as high as 67 degrees Fahrenheit or 19.5 degrees Celsius. Wales was the only UK nation that didn't experience record temperatures. The UK has warmed about 1.2 degrees Celsius since the year 1800. Speaking of the heat, let's take a look at Texas for our first climate study. Warning, it's a bit heavy. Extreme heat is responsible for hundreds of deaths in Texas's prisons from 2001 to 2019. Two thirds of the Texas prisons don't have air conditioning, which is crazy because it's Texas. So extreme heat is likely the cause of 13% of prisoner deaths during the six hottest months of each year. That's about 271 Texan lives lost or about an average of 14 a year. This study, which was published last week in the academic journal JAMA Network Open, directly contradicts the claims by Texas officials that heat hasn't resulted in any deaths. In fact, temperatures in facilities have risen to 149 degrees Fahrenheit or 65 degrees Celsius before. So how can no one have died from that? Extreme heat like this used to not be as common, but climate change is making 105 degree Fahrenheit days go from rare to representing more than 50 days in a year for more than a third of the state by 2050, according to a report by the Union of Concerned Scientists. So far, Texas officials have repeatedly failed to pass any bills that would fund installing AC units in prisons. World has nine years to advert catastrophic warming, study shows. 
Wow, Washington Post, that's a scary headline. Let's see if it's warranted. An international group of scientists published this year's 2022 global carbon budget, which I read some of. It basically sees how much we emitted in 2021 and most of 2022 compared with the previous year. The study looked at how much carbon dioxide came from fossil fuels used in the energy sector and through cement production and deforestation and other land use changes and subtracted how much of that would have been taken up by natural carbon sinks like forests and the ocean. And 2022 is likely to see a a 1% increase from 2021, which would make a new record in carbon emissions this year. That's not a good trend. We're burning through our carbon budget fast. By carbon budget, I mean how much carbon dioxide we can afford to emit before we heat up the plant to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Since about the year 1800, we've increased the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere by more than 50%. And we are now above pre-COVID emissions levels, so we have officially failed to build back greener. Emissions decreased slightly for 24 countries, including China and the European Union. These 24 countries make up about a quarter of global emissions. China's emissions dip was likely due to strict COVID lockdowns, by the way, as it still is definitely on track to keep increasing emissions in the near future. Meanwhile, the US, India, and the rest of the world increased their emissions. Since last year, the US increased its emissions by 1.5%, India increased its emissions by 6%, and the rest of the world increased its emissions by about 1.7%. By the way, did you know that India is expected to surpass China's population size next year? That's wild. Anyways, let's go back to the title. World has nine years to avert catastrophic warming. Where does that come from? Well, the study's authors put out in plain-ish English, Yes, such good plainish English that I kind of missed what they were saying the first time. They're basically saying that in order to maintain a 50% likelihood of reaching 1.5 degrees Celsius, not surpassing it, we only have nine years to fully decarbonize. That's the same case with for 1.7 degrees, we only have a 50-50% chance if we decarbonize fully in 18 years and to keep warming at two degrees Celsius, we have 30 years to fully decarbonize to get a 50-50% chance that we will actually keep the warming at two degrees Celsius. In my interpretation of this, we kind of know that 1.5 degrees Celsius keeping it there is pretty much a lost cause at this point because we're definitely not going to fully decarbonize in nine years. But now our goal should definitely be trying to hit 1.7 degrees Celsius because I rather hit and overshoot 1.7 then overshoot two degrees Celsius, you know what I mean? And you'll learn a little more about how nerve-wracking it is to surpass two degrees Celsius in a sec. So the word catastrophic is subjective, but this is what two degrees Celsius would mean according to a different 2022 study. It would mean that we would be likely to see Greenland's ice sheet collapse, the West Antarctic ice sheet collapse, tropical coral reefs die off, northern permafrost abruptly thaw, the Barents Sea lose all of its ice and possibly several other tipping points unless we significantly curb our emissions. Additionally, the authors of the global carbon budget say the number of new projects being approved due to the energy crisis goes beyond what's needed and will likely deplete our carbon budget faster. The only way these projects won't interfere with our decarbonization goals is if they are closed before the end of their lifespan, which means they would turn into stranded assets. This study is scary, but frankly, not surprising based on previous studies that we have looked at. They're all basically saying the same thing, and yet new gas projects in particular continue to be announced every week, so clearly politicians are still not listening. 
You know what we're also overdoing? How many gas and diesel cars we're making? We being Toyota, Volkswagen, and Hyundai or Kia, according to a German and Australian study that looked at 12 of the top car companies. Toyota is the most off track. Oh, how they have fallen from being the hybrid king. Overall, the companies are on track to produce about 400 million more diesel and petrol cars than what our carbon budget would allow. Other car companies that are doing better at being on track though are Volvo, General Motors, and Mercedes-Benz, which are planning on stopping the manufacturing of petrol engine cars by as early as 2025. Now let's talk about methane emissions, which are 80 times better at trapping in heat than CO2 for the first 20 years they're in the atmosphere. Methane emissions from 15 meat and dairy companies produce about 11% of methane emissions globally, which would make them as an entity the 10th largest emitter in the world. Saying it another way, the 15 livestock companies together produce more emissions than New Zealand, France, Germany, and Canada, or about 80% of the EU's methane emissions. I can also say it like their combined methane emissions are more than the amount produced by Exxon, Mobil, BP, and Shell. The researchers singled out the world's largest meat company, JBS, French dairy giant Danone, and the American meat company, Tyson. Tyson produces about as much methane emissions as Russia, and the dairy farmers of America produce as much methane emissions as the UK. Have I made enough comparisons yet? Livestock pollutes way more than countries act like they do. Right now in COP27, agriculture emissions is still really not being talked about enough. Many countries still don't even require big ag companies to report their emissions. They're voluntary. Collaborative studies are important. Peer review studies are important because top universities' energy policy centers are biased towards fossil fuels, according to a new study published in the journal Nature Climate Change. The fossil fuel industry funds many of these institutions like Columbia's Center on Global Energy Policy, MIT's Energy Initiative, and Stanford's Precourt Institute for Energy. For example, Columbia's center boasts partnerships with BP, ConocoPhillips, ExxonMobil, Chevron, and Occidental Petroleum on their website. This matters because the researchers from these centers talk to journalists, publish research used for policymaking, and testify in front of Congress. Much of this research that comes from these centers also doesn't need to be peer-reviewed like most scientific studies do, which can result in more biases slipping through. The graduate research team from Columbia's School of International and Public Affairs, yep, they went Columbia versus Columbia on this one, wanted to see the funding's impact on research biases, so they used machine learning to compare similar studies conducted by centers that advertised their fossil fuel funding partnerships and ones that weren't funded by that industry or at least didn't advertise that they were. The team reviewed over a thousand studies from the US, Canada, and the UK published from 2009 to 2020 and focused their search on biases towards natural gas. They found that the studies produced by Columbia, MIT, and Stanford's energy centers were more favorable towards gas than renewable energy. The researchers found that these centers' positions towards gas was nearly indistinguishable from the American Gas Foundation and the American Gas Associations positions. And that doesn't mean that they're right, because 23 other centers that the researchers looked at that didn't have any known ties to fossil fuels actually favored renewables and hydropower and were more neutral towards gas. While partnerships were out in the open and the center's main websites, Columbia, MIT, and Stanford centers only included fossil fuel funding in the acknowledgement section of their reports less than 25% of the time, which is not very transparent. Columbia denied these allegations, and MIT and Stanford didn't comment. 
From the lack of peer review, which is the basis of science, by the way, to the lack of funding disclosure in their reports, I am seeing red flag after red flag, and I will keep this information in mind when I am looking at energy studies in the future. Now let's look at Africa. If you saw my recent COP27 video, then you know that Africa is conflicted about investing in fossil fuels. One of the elements that I didn't bring up involves the idea of stranded assets, which I spoke on a little bit earlier in this video. It's basically the concept that project financiers won't get all of the bang for their buck in these exploration and infrastructure investments because the decarbonization effort will force projects to close before their natural lifespan is up. The think tank Carbon Tracker recently released a report that sees a drop in oil prices in the near future due to electrification and clean energy adoption, decreasing the demand for fuel. This will lead to the following. Lower export revenue and a drop in fossil fuel investments, which could result in some international oil companies not following through with demand, and lower than expected investments that might lead to fewer domestic gas supplies than expected because gas can come as a byproduct of oil. So while countries are exporting oil, they're using the byproduct gas for themselves. The lack of supply could result in more energy insecurity. Quote, whilst one might argue that the results would be lower gas prices and therefore a positive impact on affordability, the current situation illustrates the likelihood of premium buyers countering this and particularly LNG remaining a premium commodity. So basically the industry is still going to continue to hike prices even if the demand decreases. Carbon Tracker also predicts that lower gas prices and decreased investment will risk countries' financial stability due to reduced licensing and tax take. Bottom line, African countries might becoming in right as global oil prices are peaking, which is a risky investment. While the global north is pushing African countries to invest more in fossil fuels due to Russia's invasion in Ukraine, the war is also pushing the north more towards clean energy, which is a bad combination for Africa. Carbon Tracker recommends Africa utilize its impressive access to solar energy, which is 60% higher than the global average. Despite this amazing resource, Africa currently only represents 2% of global solar installations. Moving to solar requires both financial injections and policy to upgrade its grid. But Carbon Tracker says solar is actually already the cheapest form of energy in some parts of Africa, and it expects that solar will outcompete operational coal and natural gas plants for a electricity generation by 2030 across the entire continent. That's honestly really good news. Carbon Tracker recommends private capital take advantage of this amazing opportunity. It already sees private solar investment in Africa increasing by 25% by the mid-2020s. Quote, with the right structure and risk strategies, new solar investments in Africa can now earn double-digit returns in their internal rate of return projections, therefore making it one of the most profitable and least risky energy technologies on the planet. Speaking of Africa, let's start the climate victory section by talking about some good news out of the continent. Last week, South Africa released a 200-plus page, five-year, $84 billion investment plan to shift from coal straight to clean energy. 70% of the money will go towards cleaning up the energy sector, 4% will go towards creating more green jobs for coal workers, 22% will go towards building the green hydrogen sector, and 8.5% will go towards 
towards the electric vehicle sector. Green hydrogen is formed by clean energy powering electrolyzers that split water into hydrogen and oxygen. South Africa is betting big on this technology to decarbonize its industry and heavy transportation sectors. The country says it needs $39 billion in investments to pull this off and is working with country partners, the private sector, and philanthropists to make it work. During COP26, the large UN climate conference that took place last year in Glasgow, Scotland, wealthy countries allocated $8.5 billion towards South Africa's clean energy transition. But only 4% of that money will be in the form of grants. So most of that money is in the form of loans that will need to be paid back likely with interest. South Africa wants countries to provide more money than this, especially in the form of grants. The president recently said, quote, I have stressed that the component of the grant funding is much lower than what we need to fund our transition. We are a country that is already heavily burdened with debt. And I've communicated that very clearly to them, them being wealthy countries. Ahead of COP27, billionaire Michael Bloomberg announced his plan to help 25 developing countries in Africa, Asia, and Latin America phase out coal in favor of clean energy by 2040. One of these countries is South Africa. And yes, Bloomberg as in Bloomberg News. He's also the former mayor of New York and a special envoy on climate change for the UN. Bloomberg has already given $500 million towards phasing out coal-fired power plants in the US. He did not announce any new money to go towards this new initiative though, but said it would focus on helping countries develop business plans, national policies, and technological resources to mobilize big dollar investments in clean energy. By the way, um, today my neighbors decided to tear down their house, so if you hear construction in the background, that's what that is. Bloomberg Philanthropies and Sustainable Finance for All is partnering with countries which include Brazil, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Egypt, Mexico, Nigeria, the Philippines, South Africa, and Turkey. This effort will need to bring in hundreds of billions of dollars because even though clean energy is cheaper in most countries, like we just talked about, the perceived risk of switching to clean energy keeps the transition prices high, which is really unfortunate. Around the same time as that announcement, the European Union agreed to a law to expand forests, marshes, and other carbon sinks to reduce the block's emissions. A carbon sink is anything that takes up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. The legislation called the Land Use, Land Use Change, and Forestry Regulation that's a really dumb name, but okay, set a target of removing 310 million tons of CO2 equivalent by 2030. It also states that emissions taken up by plants and soil must exceed the amount emitted by the block by 2026, which is a really cool goal. Through all of this, the EU increased its emissions target from a 55% reduction to a 57% reduction compared with 1990 levels by 2030. A few days after that, Germany became the latest country to leave the Energy Charter Treaty. The treaty allows energy companies to sue other countries if they perceive a policy decision as a financial threat. While this treaty was originally used to safeguard energy companies entering the former Soviet Union countries after the Iron Curtain fell, it has since become a useful vessel for fossil fuel companies to block decarbonization efforts. The EU hasn't been able to fully agree on ending the treaty, so several countries have taken the matter into their own hands, like Italy, Spain, the Netherlands, France, Slovenia, Poland, and now Germany. Germany is definitely the largest economy to do this, so it's a really big deal that they left. And I hope the trend continues. 
Over in Poland last weekend, hundreds of climate protesters took the streets in Lisbon with dozens storming into the building of Portugal's economy minister to demand he resigns. He's a former oil exec. Police officers dragged peaceful protesters from the building as the minister fled through the back door. The activists chose last weekend to do this protest because it takes place in the beginning of COP27. While that was going on in Portugal, the University of Barcelona in Spain became the first university that we know of to implement a mandatory course on the climate crisis for all 14,000 undergraduate and graduate students starting in the fall of 2024. The course will combine ecological and social concepts of the crisis. To do this, it will devise a training program for its 6,000 academic staff. The university agreed to this after the student-led group End Fossil Barcelona held a seven-day sit-in on campus. 200 professors backed the students on this move. In the end, activists were given the opportunity to appoint 60% of the group of experts and academics that would create this new climate course. One of the experts that the group promoted sits on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The course is also worth five credits. But now we gotta get to where the story gets less rosy because this course was actually sort of a concession for protesters to stop their protesting without addressing their main demand, which was to get the university to stop accepting fossil fuel funding. Additionally, the idea of making this course actually came from Madrid's conservative community president, who is on the record for saying that the climate is always changing and claims that the talk of climate crisis is just being apocalyptic as part of a communist plot. So while she's not on the university's board, it will be interesting to see who the other 40% of the course creators will be and if her views will have any sway on this decision. And that downsliding climate victory leads me into the climate fails. A coalition of environmental groups are calling on the Queensland government in Australia to end exemptions for coal projects near the Great Barrier Reef. At least eight projects applied for permits without any environmental impact statements, and six were approved by the Environment Ministry despite this. At least seven will still need federal approval, so groups like the Australian Conservation Foundation, BirdLife, and Queensland's Conservation Council are trying to make noise to get the government to reject these projects due to lack of statements. An independent group of experts recently raised questions about the Environment Ministry's processes despite the Environment Ministry insisting that their processes are robust, which is why those companies did not need those environmental statements. But um, clearly these projects are going to have a large environmental impact. One of the projects under fire is the Vulcan South project owned by Vitronite, which is expected to clear a thousand hectares of koala habitat and at least 75 hectares of greater glider habitat. That's not even talking about the climate impact. Remember, the International Energy Agency has stated that we cannot afford to build any new fossil fuel projects at this point if we want to keep warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Unless these projects are stranded assets. Meanwhile, Switzerland is reportedly paying poorer nations like Ghana and Dominica to reduce emissions on its behalf. Dominica is a small island nation, by the way. Switzerland has the goal of reducing emissions by half by 2030, but instead of doing the work itself, it's paying other countries to do it for them. Experts have pushed back on this method and are worried that other wealthy countries will want to follow Switzerland's lead. And they're right because Japan and Sweden are already showing interest on pursuing this method as well. I guess the one benefit is that Switzerland is helping these poor countries pay for their transition to clean energy, 
right? Well, according to Switzerland's methods, they actually can take credit for projects that would have gone on without their money unless more stringent qualification measures are put in place. So Switzerland has explicitly said that it will not meet its decarbonization targets without this scheme. To be fair, the reason why they are struggling to meet their target is because Switzerland has actually already mostly decarbonized its energy sector. So now it has to decarbonize the harder to decarbonize sectors and that obviously is more challenging. Most countries have not even gone to that part yet. Other countries Switzerland is taking emissions reductions credit for is Peru, Senegal, Georgia, Vanuatu, Thailand, and Ukraine, with the country also in conversation with three more countries to be involved in this program. I think the only country that I can see that this making sense is Vanuatu because the country is actually already carbon negative, so I guess the money could go towards more carbon offset programs. Uh, now let's turn our attention to the U.S. A new carbon brief analysis determines that the U.S. is $32 billion short of paying its share of the $100 billion a year to help poor countries transition to clean energy. Because the U.S. is responsible for about 40% of historical carbon emissions, it should pay nearly $40 billion a year to make up for its environmental damage. But Congress has mainly blocked this effort. Last year, President Biden tried to get just $11.4 billion to add to the fund, but Congress only allowed one billion dollars to go through. Thanks, Joe. Now that we know that Congress will be split, this will be very unlikely to improve anytime soon, unfortunately. And the U.S. is also not the only country on this list that is not following through with its pledge. Canada is the next one that is definitely missing its target, but nowhere near the level that the U.S. is missing the target. But also the U.S. has to pay the most, but also we deserve it to pay the most because we're the largest historical emitter by a lot. Anyways, let's finish off this episode with one more climate victory, just to bring up the mood a little bit. At the beginning of November, the Biden administration allocated $13 billion to go towards helping lower and middle income households lower their energy prices through subsidizing electrification and energy saving retrofits. $4.5 billion comes from the existing low income home energy assistance program, which is controlled by the Department of Health and Human Services. This money can directly subsidize home heating and cooling costs and help families weatherize and repair their homes. The rest of the money will come from the Inflation Reduction Act and must be administered through state and tribal leadership. This means it's up to your state leadership to decide whether or not to give you that money. Low income households spend nearly 9% of their income on energy, which is roughly three times as much as other income brackets. They are also less likely to live in buildings that have been recently updated. And with the energy prices expected to continue being volatile during the winter because of Russia's invasion in Ukraine, this relief is very much needed. And that was your climate recap for the day. If you like the work I do, please follow this podcast, give it a five-star rating, leave a review, and consider checking out the Becksphere Climate Corner YouTube channel. Remember to talk about the climate crisis every single day and to support your local news organizations. Bye for now.